0: so check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to Project at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with Devin Luquist. So for everyone who's listening, you probably don't know who Devin is. Devin, we went to MIT together. Devin's a chemical engineer. We took some classes together in the economics department. We were frat brothers. And also we played on the water polo team together. So Devin, how are you today?
1: Doing all right, Rob. Thanks for having me.
0: No, thanks for coming on. I mean, you know like we we you haven't really worked in maintenance and reliability, but you have worked in the industrial space for a while, you know with uh shell with independent energy standards. Do you want to give us a little background of you know what you've done over your career since since MIT
1: Yeah, and I think it's been pretty closely related. We had a lot of reliability engineering offshore, um, but at Shell, I was responsible for managing our deep water wells and assets in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so essentially, my role here boiled down to technical risk management. We were working with assets many miles below the seafloor, our knowledge was incomplete, and the potential for cost and impact was pretty significant. Um, kind of my role was to ensure that the organization was appropriately addressing and managing these risks in a rational way. Um, There's also some top size challenges as well. I wasn't directly responsible for that, but our, our maintenance and reliability team uh, and engineering team would work pretty closely with us in terms of managing those risks. Um, After Shell, I moved to a small startup, uh, Independent Energy Standards, and the goal there was applying advanced analytics to evaluate uh, how companies were managing risk at a broad scale. Uh, So what sort of controls were they putting in place and what sort of exposures were were they looking at? Uh, The end goal here was to reward operators for doing a good job of managing risk and create a market mechanism for best practices in the space. Uh, So, for example, an operator who was doing a good job may be able to sell sustainably produced gas at a premium. Uh, And so we were doing a lot of uh, analytics and applying different AI techniques in order to measure and extract that information and help operators keep improving and implementing best practices. That's kind of it in a nutshell.
0: No, that sounds good. And like since then, you've you you know you've left uh, IES, uh, I guess, six months or a year ago, and you've kind of been working on some AI stuff yourself. Do you want to give us a little background on that?
1: Yeah. So, so one of the challenges we ran into time and time again at IES is that while companies had an abundance of knowledge and abundance of process, only a fraction of that information was really leveraged by their people on the line when it was needed. Um, so I'm currently working on Woven cognition and at, and at Woven we are working on AI which can bridge knowledge silos and help organizations more effectively use that information. Uh, and we're doing that by first using the AI to digest and understand what's there and then actively delivering it to people when they need it. And so there's there's always gonna be uncertainties in what we do. Um, but help but there's a lot that we can do uh, to help us better use knowledge better reduce uncertainty and ultimately in the risk space better you know make us help help us make better decisions
0: absolutely I, I mean we you keep mentioning it and that's kind of why you know I wanted to have you on today and why we you know we talked about it a little bit is I think that you know as we get into more of the asset management like we get away from maintenance and reliability and we get to kind of a higher level we're really we really need to talk about risk we really need to understand risk and then the kind of two aspects of risk that that are kind of related but a little bit different are uncertainty and decision making
1: yeah for sure and uncertainty can make decisions very difficult
0: oh absolutely and that's like you know like first off let's kick it off a little bit so wikipedia i went on there and I Googled like risk and what they say or what they define risk as is the possibility of losing something of value. Values such as physical health, social status, emotional well-being or financial wealth can be gained or lost when taking risk resulting from a given action or inaction, foreseen or unforeseen. Risk can also be defined as the intentional interaction with uncertainty. Uncertainty is a potential unpredictable and uncontrollable outcome. And risk is a consequence of action taken in spite of uncertainty. So there's a couple of things there that I I want to kind of highlight. So the first thing is action or inaction. So a lot of people think that, or a lot of people I've seen over my career, they look at a decision as, you know, like, a, like there's like, you're coming up to an intersection at the road, and you can either turn right or turn left. And they don't really think about the possibility of if you just stood where you were, or you, maybe you kept going straight, right? So we're evaluating the right turn, we're evaluating left turn, but we're not evaluating what we're doing now. What do you like? Do you see anything like that? Or have you seen that?
1: Yeah. So that's huge. A lot of people will, well, first of all, people aren't terribly good at thinking about risk. Humans have a number of biases that make rational thinking difficult. Um, for example, when it comes to flying, we may be more afraid of flying than driving, even though a car has a much higher accident rate. Um, maybe it's because we feel we have some control over the car or perhaps it's because the potential consequence from flying is greater, but all those factors tend to close our cloud, our judgment. And it's the same thing when you're kind of forced with a decision, um, you're forced with a decision on uncertainty, right? It feels risky to go either way, but in fact, doing nothing, uh, particularly if the position you're in is risky, uh, can also be a bigger uh, challenge.
0: So I guess jumping back here, like, we, how do you, you know, like, we've talked a little bit about action versus inaction, but how do you think about risk?
1: Yeah. So when I think about risk, I immediately move to frameworks and structures that can help me think more rationally about it um, and help me manage that exposure. Perhaps one of my favorite frameworks is a bow tie. So you can imagine a diagram with a number of stacked threats on the left side, a central event, and a number of stacked outcomes on the right. It looks kind of like a bow tie. The beauty of this framework is that instead of allowing a risk to be kind of an abstract fear, it forces one to clearly articulate what could happen, how it could happen, what would be the impact of that event. And even more, it encourages us to place barriers uh, to prevent an event from happening in the first place and to minimize the impact of an event if it does occur. Uh, This sort of structure allows us to be very rational about what is actually going on, how we can manage it, and when we're making a decision, what are we actually choosing between?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. Because when we talk about risk, right, like a lot of sites, uh, like especially you see this a lot in safety, they go like, you know, safety, it's our number one priority, you know, risk is unacceptable. And if you really dig into that statement, uh, it doesn't make any sense because like even I'm sitting in my apartment right now, there is a risk that, you know, an asteroid could hit Edmonton and I could die, right? Right for sure. When we're thinking about risk, how do we like how do we start by how do we start quantifying it? How do we start understanding, you know, that kind of thing? And like how do we actually make decisions based on, you know, what we're doing? Like obviously that risk of an asteroid hitting Edmonton, it's one, it's pretty small, but two is there's nothing really that I could do to avoid it. Like where do we where do we start looking at this?
1: Yeah. So obviously if safety was the only thing we cared about, we wouldn't be drilling for oil and gas because the process of drilling for oil and gas exposes us to risks. Um, the challenge is, how do we appropriately manage those risks such that the benefit in this case, the, the resources we're extracting and the benefit that provides to our community um, are greater than the risks themselves, right? And so that's where that, that structured framework comes in and understanding, okay, I am going to produce oil and gas. That means I'm going to create a connection from the reservoir where the oil is currently trapped to the surface. By doing that, I produce a risk of a leak. In order to prevent that leak, there's a number of barriers I can put in place. So I can put casing, which is basically a steel pipe that can isolate the kind of the, the oil production and make sure that it is only going to come up to the surface in the path that we want it to. Now we can look at that barrier itself and understand what its probability of failure is and how likely it is to leak. We could put a second barrier behind it. So even if the first one leaks, the second one contains it. And ideally we have a mitigation plan, which is kind of the on the other side of the on the right side of the bow tie, right? So if that first we have a chance that the first barrier leaks, we have a way to detect it and then if it does leak we have a way to mitigate it on the downside so that it doesn't get past the second barrier by doing all those things we can significantly reduce the chance of an incident happening and we can make sure that the risk and the the you know the potential for impact from producing this oil and gas is significantly reduced and therefore we can justify the production based on providing more value than than the risk of the operation itself
0: absolutely and like really what you're doing there is you're looking at the benefits and you're looking at the costs, and you're kind of making a balancing act. And you're well, you're essentially picking a decision where the benefits outweigh the cost, right?
1: That's right. And this is pretty close to home to me. Uh, beyond work, I'm also a pretty avid cave diver, and a lot of the same principles apply. We analyze what could fail, gas, lights, mask, how they might fail, what the risk of failure is, and I'm certainly not planning on going in there if I think I'm going to die. It comes down to understanding what your barriers are having redundancy in them and being able to mitigate anything that happens and that that structure and that reduction of risk uh becomes really important in how you're thinking about it
0: no that's a great point and and i mean you know like you do that with cave diving i do that in some of my hobbies like that include like poker and daily fantasy where you know like you, i'm not going into a poker game hoping to lose right like i'm trying to win money or i'm trying to ha- like have a good time and, you know, like it's something that like risk and uncertainty and decision making. The, the reason I'm kind of passionate about it is because in types of gambling, like risk and uncertainty and decision making, it's like a core concept. It's something that we talk about all the time. And it's something that's really prevalent where, you know, in industry, you know, we're not thinking too much about the risk of a gearbox failing or a production failing or we talk about it like we do, but we don't really use the same in-depth analysis to evaluate those kind of scenarios. Like, how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I think it's easy to for, for organizations to focus on what they know. If something is working, great, it's in good shape. Um, but it's a little bit more challenging to understand when it's going to fail, how it's going to fail, and what the risk of that is. Um, that's that's a cost that can be deferred. It's a concern that can be deferred. Uh, and I think it just kind of falls off people's radar.
0: Yeah. And I think it's like also it's hard to quantify it or to put it in a framework where we understand it as easily as like a card game where it's kind of a defined outcome.
1: Yep, that's right.
0: So I think people just struggle to do it.
1: Yeah, that's entirely right. And in a game of cards, there's only so many outcomes that can occur. Now, obviously, uh, techniques are made to like, such as uh, using multiple decks will make it harder to predict, but it's still kind of a defined set of outcomes.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like multiple decks, it doesn't, it just adds more possibilities. It doesn't really change the analysis that you would do. Like I was listening to a, a podcast yesterday and the guy's point was, essentially was work really hard and you'll get good at stuff. And, you know, he used the analogy of one monkey typing at a typewriter for an infinite amount of time, it'll eventually produce a Shakespearean play. But if you you actually take that to infinity, not only will he produce one play, he will produce all the plays in a row eventually.
1: That might take some time.
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean it'll take time but it's it's like it's inevitable that it will happen so it's kind of an interesting thought experiment but it's something to think about
1: for sure and you know my first step in approaching uncertainty is trying to understand a little bit better so like in poker uh, some of these uh, techniques such as counting cards can be so successful that they're disallowed and explicitly combated right but similarly in life, the more you know about uncertainties, the better position you will be. You'll be in uh, to be decisive despite them. Um, and I think, uh, you know, in, in industry, it can be hard to get some of that information, and it can be hard to uh, delve into that uncertainty a little bit. Um, and but if you can do that, it'll put you in a much better position to make uh, decisions, even in that uncertainty.
0: Yeah and the key there is is not is is like those decisions will be better on average than if you hadn't used kind of a framework to look at your problems, right?
1: Yeah, and and you're getting to an important uh, concept of variance there, right? It, you might be taking the right risk-based decision, but that doesn't mean you're going to immediately find a positive outcome on the first attempt. And and that that variance is something that organizations really struggle with in terms of making decisions.
0: Absolutely. So, the, yeah, I mean, you brought that up. I I love it. I talk about it all the time. So it's something that, like in poker, we call this being uh, results oriented. So let's say we we made a decision where I had the best hand. We got all the money in, and then I lost because you know the turn or the river was bad or or whatever. That happens. It that's part of. That's why you play a game with variance. Um, you know like it's supposed to be more fun, even though it hurts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It definitely adds a a different dynamic to the situation, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, it definitely does. Like, like they say, they do experiments with people and it's like, if the game is, is purely skill based, then like, like if I was playing chess against a grandmaster, I'm not going to play against them for a very long time because I will just like, it's not going to be fun for me versus like a game with variants. like I could sit down with the best player in the world at poker, and I may win eventually. But I mean, I'll lose in the long run. But I may win.
1: Yeah, and and that chance. I mean, it's why people play the lottery, right? There's a chance they could win.
0: Absolutely, and, and like I've, you know, I've struggled with explaining this concept to people in, like, at work, and I think people listening will connect to this. Is when I when I was doing. Uh, failure predictions at tech, like we were looking at, you know, risk of failure, and you know, I was doing some estimations, like, hey, you know, we're going to have to change out twenty engines next year, and you'll never actually have to change twenty engines. Like, like your prediction will say twenty point three or whatever. Like, it's impossible for you to actually change twenty point three engines. You'll either be better or you'll be worse, but. On average, if you plan for that 20, that's the best decision you can make. So spare parts analysis, if you're doing a spare parts optimization, the analysis that you're doing, you're minimizing the risk for that 20.3 outcome. Doesn't mean you'll ever get the optimal result, but you are making the best decision.
1: That's right. And it can be difficult to uh, get organizational support for some of these things. Uh, similarly, you um, we would do, uh, you know, improvement jobs on wells, and the well might be producing a thousand barrels a day. Um, and we would estimate returns somewhere, you know, risk-rated risk gains from doing an, a, a job on this well might improve, increase production by five hundred barrels, but it would never actually be five hundred barrels, right? Maybe it would be seven hundred, maybe it would be three hundred. But it's this concept of weighting what we're doing for the potential outcomes. Um, if you don't do it uh and you say in your case uh, you know we're just going to fix machines when they break and we're not going to worry about ordering parts then you're going to have really long wait times and really long delays you're not going to be able to get your equipment back up and running Um, of course if you overorder, you might have more inventory than you need Um, and the only thing that the organization really sees though is what actually happened right so if if you say it's going to be 20 and you order parts for 20 and then it's 21 the organization is going to be wondering why didn't we have enough parts? If you say it's going to be 20 and instead only 15 shut down, the organization is going to be wondering why do we have so much inventory? Being able to truly communicate the depth of technical detail that went into estimating and trying to be prepared is difficult. And and the variance in actual results uh, is a challenge in any organization.
0: Yeah. And I think it's challenging for people to even wrap their heads around it. Like, Even if it's an individual decision, like, you know, like at the poker table, like if you put, like you put your cards in or you put the money in and you're the favorite and you lose, even sometimes you can still like, even though you know that you made the best decision and it's like concrete in front of you that your hand was best when the money went in, it still hurts. And it's still like, well, what if I didn't do that? Then maybe I wouldn't have lost as much, even though like. In actuality, it doesn't make any sense to think that way.
1: For sure. It's a concept that humans struggle with. If I flipped a fair coin and got heads three times in a row, the next one is just a little bit more likely to be tails, right? <laughs> not really. And I know that, but it's hard to avoid that sense. It's like this this thing needs to get to 50%. So the next one's more likely to be tails, right? No, no, it's not. But that is definitely a, a human bias to feel that. And it takes a structured uh, approach to be able to sit there and say, no, I know this is the right bet, and I'm going to make it again. It's important for you to have that resilience, but it's also important to keep an eye out for what you're learning, right? If, if you go through a few times and you've made the wrong choice, or sorry, you've made the right choice based on your model and your beliefs, but the outcome is not what you expected, you got to take a look and say, did I learn anything here that would change my model, that would change my approximation for what the right decision is? If you did, then maybe it's time to think about changing. If you didn't, you really got to stick with that that understanding of what the right decision is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like you are going to make assumptions in your model, right? So if if the outcome is different, like let, let's take that coin example, right? So I did get this question um, on an interview when I was, when I was in college (laughs) and, but, but either way, so essentially the question was, um, if I have five coins in my pocket, like five coins in my pocket, and one is a double-headed coin, if I select, like, that means if I flip it, I'm going to get heads regardless. If I randomly selected one of those coins and flipped five heads in a row, what's the probability I had the double-headed coin? So that was the question. But like tying it back to your example is if we flipped heads three times in a row or five times in a row or hundred times in a row at some point, at, like when do we challenge the assumption that that coin is fair?
1: Yeah, that's great. And you can put statistics about that behind that too. Similarly to the question you asked, right? They were trying to get to what's the chance that this, this coin has two heads, right? Uh, you could say what's the chance that i observe this 3 times in a row that this outcome right and if you think the chance that you observe that outcome 3 times in a row is 1 in a million you probably need to take a look at your model doesn't necessarily mean you need to change it it could happen 1 in a million times but i would be very thoughtful about it if instead you look at it and say the chance of this happening 3 times in a row say you know you predicted 20 machines would need repair and the last three years only, you know, you've had 18, 19, and 17. If, if the chance of that happening is one in 10, your model's probably pretty good.
0: Yeah, it's it's something. And, and it's like you see this all the time where people misinterpret risk, right? So like let's take the housing crisis in, into kind of perspective. And we talked about, you know, like they package these mortgages and, they you know be, they evaluated each person's risk of default by being independent of each other and therefore all these mortgages were related uh, were sorry were rated as AAA right well like let's say we're in Florida well if a hurricane hits Florida is it independent that my house would be different than my neighbors like not exactly the same thing with the economy, like if all of the United States or all of Canada goes down, like is it likely that we're all kind of gonna default? Probably.
1: Yeah. And that and that's why it's really important to be very aware of what the assumptions going into a model or going into uh kind of, you know, that the risk model in that case, what they're saying. So if if you group everyone in Florida together and say they have good credit, but and kind of you know, you say this is a diversified group. What are things that that entire group is exposed to in Florida? It could be a hurricane. Um, similarly, as we start talking about AI and deep learning models in terms of better making decisions, these models are only as good as the set of data they've been seen that they've seen. Right? If you look at, say, algorithmic trading, some of these mod- algorithmic trading models are extremely effective on a normal day to day basis. But if you give them something they haven't seen before, say really high temperatures or you know an extreme in the market, um, they're going to make decisions that are entirely unpredictable and outside of the scope of some of those original assumptions.
0: My my favorite example for that, well, there's two actually that I'll tell you. But the first one is one of the models. It's it like crawls Twitter or something for keywords, and then we'll trade based off of those keywords and like the sen- sentiment behind those words. And it was a big day for Anne Hathaway, like something came out about her and Berkshire Hathaway had a really bad day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. So it it saw a name and then it considered that this was probably negative press for Berkshire.
0: Yeah. So and then the other one I, I heard about was American Airlines. It was something to do with them. I forget if it was positive or negative news but it was the article itself was like 10 years old and one day just American Airlines I forget if it spiked up or dropped but it 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 like went crazy like 10%, 15% on no like a like a day that nothing actually changed and it, they said oh yeah it was just the model was messed up and it it thought something was happening when it didn't
1: yeah, as you build those models, you need to be very careful to put controls in place to identify and, and avoid some of these things. But but this all raises an interesting point where on one side I'm saying if you put together a risk-based decision and you think you're making the right decision, you need to stick with it even in variance. And on the other side I'm saying don't trust your model, right? So, you know, it's like hey, you got to trust it, you got to stick with it and then but you also got to be very careful with it. And that ultimately comes down to the different assumptions. You need to That's why you need to keep an eye on how it's performing and what you're learning and making sure that the assumptions you've made, you still believe those are correct. And if you do believe those are correct, then you got to stick with the decision that you believe is correct.
0: Yeah. I, and I think that it's something where, like as people who build models, like we have to be very careful with that stuff. Like I was talking to my mom about AI and she she gave me an example that, One of the companies she worked for, uh, they hired this company, this was before AI, but they were doing some analytics and they were developing a model to kind of predict like the size of customers and kind of repeat business based on the purchases. And they came out and said that um, it wasn't price of the product that was affecting whether they purchased it or not. It was the taxes on the product that were affecting whether they would purchase it or not.
1: Well, that's interesting because taxes are related to the price, yeah.
0: That's how I see it.
1: <laughs> okay, fair enough.
0: <laughs> so, 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 right? Like, we have to be really careful that we're not coming away with something like completely ridiculous. And like, um, for people who listen all the time, like Adam McElhaney from Uptake, we we talked to him about this as well. And and one of the the example he used was if we look at if a piece of equipment every time it's failed, there was a full moon, the model or the AI that we built, it'll think that the full moon is causing the equipment failure.
1: That's right. AI is very good at pattern matching, and that'll give you correlations, but certainly not causation.
0: Yeah. And it's something that like, if we're building the model, one, it's what data do we feed into the model? We have to be very careful with what data we put in in the first place.
1: That's right. There's been some news recently about companies using AI to try to standardize evaluations and identify people that they think are best suited for roles. And and the idea behind that was, can we get away from internal biases that humans have? And what they realized was that this this AI was in fact learning the biases that are currently in our organizations because humans created them.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean I could see the you could see that coming like the it's only as good as the data you put in, right? So you have to be careful with that for sure. I mean, one thing I want to just mention or talk about um is the concept of expected value. So obviously we we both know it. We took it in the same course at MIT, but expected value is really the sum of all outcomes of probability times the kind of the outcome itself. So if we look at it from a, let's let's just make an example. So then we kind of illustrate it easier. If we were flipping that coin again, and obviously we have to, it's a fair coin. And if we flip that coin If it was heads, I'll pay you $10. If it was tails, you pay me $5. Like obviously as somebody like anecdotally, you can say, well, this game is good for me, right?
1: I love that game. Any day.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And like, you'd want to play it as much as you could, right? Because in theory, you're going to make money off of that, right? But how much money are we actually going to make? Well, if we use expected value, We go 50% of the time, it's going to be heads and I'll pay you $10. So the expected value of that outcome is $5 positive for you, like 50% times 10. On the opposite end, if it's tails, 50% of the time, you're going to pay me $5. So that's minus five times 50%. So negative 2.5. So for you, the game in expectation, you'll win $2.50 per flip.
1: That's right.
0: So let's just jump back to a few of the concepts we talked about before, right? So one of the concepts was you'll never hit that outcome, right? So if we flip the coin once, you're either going to win 10 bucks or you're going to lose five bucks.
1: You're
0: mm-hmm. never going to get 250. Like there's not even 250 in this in this game at all. But if we flip that coin a hundred times, you're probably like, or Let's take it to the nth degree. If we flip this coin a million times, you're going to win on average 250 a flip.
1: And you're going to be broke.
0: <laughs> you're right. I don't have that kind of money, Devin. <laughs> but it's just a concept that like it's a simple concept. It's really well understood in economics. This is the kind of math that casinos do. This is the math that financial trading firms do, hedge funds. And this is the kind of math that we need to do as industry professionals.
1: That's right. And this is very applicable to a lot of what we're doing in terms of managing uncertainty and managing assets. Um, something that'll be close to home for you is predictive maintenance, right? Um, what can we do to reduce down, re- downtime, reduce repair costs? Um, and that benefit can direct be directly expressed in terms of expected value, right?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. like. I mean, even, you know, like making that decision, like whether we should do predictive maintenance or we should do preventative maintenance or we should do run to failure. This is the math that it's doing. Like if you buy those softwares that calculate your optimal intervals, it's using this type of math.
1: Yep. Of course, the difference is, is that the outcomes aren't guaranteed, right? It's not like there's a heads and a tails, and those are the only two things that could happen, and we could easily measure how frequently they do happen. Uh, the challenge is that there's many, many different outcomes, and it's difficult to understand uh, those variations. So, for example, if it's just you know changing the oil on an engine to prevent a larger failure down the line, there's a cost that you are putting in in time and, and effort and materials in order to change that oil, and you can predict um, when you need to do this in order to reduce the chance to a, of engine failure to a level that you are comfortable with. Um, but it's difficult to measure how much you've actually won by doing that uh, because you're never actually observing that engine failure, right? Instead, what you're observing is the cost of doing the work. Uh, and so if you look at a balance sheet, you, you see that cost, but you don't see the expected value.
0: Yeah, that's, you know, over my career, that's probably one of the biggest kind of hurdles that, I don't even still don't entirely know the answer of how you solve it, but it's that like, and, and everyone listening, you're going to hear this too is let's say, you know, we, we took an oil sample or we took a vibration reading or we took a, you know, an ultrasound reading and we saw that, you know, there's going to be a defect or there's this, this machine's going to fail and we changed it out beforehand. Well, we can say, you know, we saved the downtime, we saved the cost of, you know, like if this thing blows up, maybe it hurts the equipment next to it. We can say, you know, all this historical stuff, but how do we actually get people to believe that we saved them money?
1: Yeah. And, you know, if I think there was an easy answer here, we wouldn't be asking ourselves that, um, but you really do need to do the best you can to try to estimate and try to keep those numbers in front of people. I found it can be really effective to use conservative estimates. So for example, if you're trying to put in uh, a, a sort of preventative maintenance plan, how much do you need to save to make that worthwhile and then justify how easy it will be you to sa- for you to save that much? Of course, this will cut the the total expected value short, right? You won't be able to really uh, highlight everything that you've achieved, but it's a pretty effective way to start a plan. Um, if you stow- if you kind of shoot for the stars and try to make up well, you know uh, there's an X percent chance of damaging all these other equipment and, and add all that up, uh, people might dismiss you a little bit. So I find that a very effective way to start the conversation and then from there, try to find ways to, to capture that whole value so that you can really get uh, get credit and demonstrate the value of what you're doing. Um, but ultimately keeping it out in front of people is probably one of the most important pieces.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And it's something where it's funny, right? Like, um, specifically at tech, we had a provider that uh, they were helping us with one of the aspects of our predictive maintenance program. And they would give us save values for everything that they did. And even, you know, like my manager, we used to joke about, like, the save values, how they're so big. And How, you know, like this same component, we've saved it eight times, but it still sort of like, even though people didn't understand or believe the value, and I, I don't think necessarily the value was correct anyways, but people still knew that they were doing something.
1: That's right. And we had a similar thing in oil and gas where you would uh, justify work based on how many barrels you would save or how many barrels you would produce. And some of these numbers were astronomical, and sometimes they were claimed by multiple different groups for similar work. Um, But they were all on a similar scale, and so it was possible to understand how different people were thinking about things. And more importantly, they were always accompanied with kind of a minimum validated number which justified the work and the rest of it was just kind of a way of measuring what was possible and as long as you thought about it like that it worked if you thought if you tried to say we are actually making this much more money you'd have a hard time finding that in the end but as long as you validated that kind of that minimal value was there and you were uh, thoughtful about what we were really trying to accomplish it it worked out all right
0: yeah and I think another thing is just people get a little gummed up on how big the numbers can be right like I think everyone they they don't think necessarily about the scale of the business that they're in like at tech we were spending over a billion dollars on maintenance annually so like to find 10 million dollars worth of savings, it's not really that much in the in the grand scheme of things right for sure. But like if we if we take it into our own lives and go, well, if someone gave me 10 million bucks like that's a pretty big deal. Like I think people had a hard time getting over that hurdle.
1: I kind of was hoping you were going to give me that much off of our game.
0: <laughs> we better start flipping that coin a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so the la- the last thing I want to talk about or just mention before we jump off here is Kind of an interesting thing that I heard on a poker podcast, maybe, I don't know, it must have been five or 10 years ago, was it was kind of the, this concept of like alternate realities. And like it was, uh, like he was talking about Monte Carlo simulations, but we can kind of take it down a little bit less uh, abstract than that. When we're looking at decisions with uncertainty, in, in the universe where like you and I are flipping a coin, there is a universe or an alternate universe where if we flip it, it's heads in like here, there is an alternate universe where that is tails, right? Sure. And so he, he kind of described it or the way he described it was worms flowing through like a 3D space or you could think of it as like holes going through Swiss cheese. So the more holes that you have, the more of that space that you understand.
1: Yeah. And those are basically potential outcomes and they can link together in all sorts of different ways.
0: Absolutely. And it's it's just a kind of a esoteric way of thinking about it. And, and I don't know if it helps you to think about it this way or, or people listening to help about it that way. But you're trying to make the best decision that will have the best outcome in all of those like over the majority of those alternate universes. So it's crazy to think about it, but it's something to think about.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And that helps you uh, think about this variance problem a little bit, right? Because if you think about it as there's only one universe, then there's only one outcome. But if you think about it as 10 potential universes that cover all 10 potential outcomes, you're going to make the choice that gives you the best chance of success in those 10 universes, right?
0: Absolutely. And if you kill Jet Li and all the other uh, universes, he gets stronger in the one he's in. (laughs) Got to be careful. (laughs) So I guess the last thing I want to mention, you know, is I guess at the beginning you talked a little bit about Woven and it was something that, you know, we've touched on or we've talked about kind of offline here is like getting data or linking data out of different kind of data streams. And one thing that we've talked about was kind of distilling comments that you get into work in work orders into something that's manageable for people to like in data analyst roles or in reliability engineering roles. Like, how does that work? Like you're using natural language processing. Like how do you, or can you tell us a little bit about what you've worked on in that?
1: Yeah. So the kind of the goal of a lot of natural language processing is to be able to extract meaning from unstructured text. Right. So one of the things you could try to use it for would be in, uh, in, in those work orders where if someone is trying to look back and understand what things are actually failing, how frequently are they failing, um, what are we doing about it? Right now, in order to be able to do that, someone would have to look through each work order and classify and categorize everything they're seeing. It's certainly a manually, manual and difficult task, um, but it's also actually difficult for people to be consistent in doing that. Um, the beauty of AI powered by natural language processing is that in a systematic way, it could extract that information from this unstructured data and allow you to take, make much better data-driven decisions about what you're looking at. Let me give you an example. There was a, uh, a study that came out about a year ago uh, using some of these techniques on medical research. Um, they found that the, an, an algorithm that they wrote had about 70% accuracy in going through cancer diagnoses and identifying the stage of cancer, the type of cancer, and the location of cancer. Now, 70% doesn't sound too good until you realize that doctors were only actually 60% effective. Some of that was because, right? Some of that was because it's kind of mind-numbing to go through these documents and actually sit there and identify everything. And so humans just get worse and worse at this over time. Some of this was because the documents were actually somewhat confusing because they were written relatively quickly and being interpreted by another doctor. Uh, But the bottom line was that the algorithm was actually more effective than the doctors. In extracting some very specific pieces of information from a couple thousand documents. Um, that's the sort of tech that we could apply um, to our unstructured knowledge in the field and help us make much better decisions about what we're doing.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I guess, you know, Devin, if anyone is out there listening and they want to, you know, get a hold of you or to they want to do kind of a pilot thing on using NLP, like how can they get in contact you or do you want them to just email Rob's reliability project and I can put them in contact with you?
1: Yeah. So feel free to reach out at dluquist at wovencog.com. So D L U Q U I S T at woven W O V E N cog C O G.com.
0: Awesome. And are you going to be like, do you want them to, do you have a website? Do you want people to follow you on LinkedIn? Anything else?
1: Yeah. Feel free to follow me on LinkedIn and uh website's work in progress. So no need to go there yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The website, the website stuff, you gotta, you gotta get that, get that in.
1: (laughs) I could put something up.
0: (laughs) So everyone who's still listening, you know, I hope you enjoyed that one. We kind of went a little off script. We kind of went a little uh, esoteric there, but we talked a lot about risk, uncertainty, decision making. I'm sure we're going to talk more about it coming up. It's something that um, I'm very passionate about, and also I think is kind of widely misunderstood throughout the industry. So it's something that you know we'll we'll have to definitely do some more education on.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think it's a, a critical part of what we do, and I think people are not really good at making these decisions. It, it takes structure, it takes thought, but I think it can be done properly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree 100%. And so, Devin, you know, I appreciate you coming on, talking shop and, uh, you know, sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you. Perfect. And so if anyone's still listening, you know, we appreciate you listening. Um, if you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform And then also follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn or Facebook.